I'm Danielle Houston. This is my podcast, The Checkup. I am also a health and welfare consultant at Lockton Companies. Today, I am recording a two-part series with another Lockton expert. This is all part of an ongoing series where I get to introduce you to the depth and breadth that is Lockton. The expertise that we have within our walls, the passion that we have within our space for helping employers with their health care is something that I hear coined very often here as not doing things the way that a traditional broker does. We really are breaking outside the walls and challenging those notions. Linda Brink and her team are part of that. And to really honor Linda and to get it right, I'm gonna read her bio. There is no way that I could ever possibly remember all of this. Linda is the Vice President of Population Health and Wellbeing for our Mountain West series. She's got a degree in public health and a master's in organizational learning. With more than 20 years of experience, Linda works to improve the health of our employer communities through her expertise in health outcomes, health determinants, interventions, and evaluations. This approach is combined with a focus on total well-being, physical, social, emotional, financial, and career with the goal of overall health improvement for the entire employee population. Many of you listening know that I have a passion for wellness and I have loved spending time with Linda and her team to learn about the ways that they work with our employers. And um, I'm, I've just really enjoyed learning about the work that they do, and I'm excited to share it with you today. Linda, welcome to the checkup. Thank you, Danielle. I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. And we've had some fun with this topic. It's something that you and I are both interested in. You, of course, much more skilled in this space. So I'm gonna, I'm, I just wanna let you shine in that today. We have a lot of ground to cover because it is a meaty topic, but again, we're both interested in it. I feel like everyone's talking about it in some ways. Some carriers, and I'm gonna really call on Kaiser Permanente here right now, they've been talking about social determinants of health for quite some time. And you and your team are really working on doing something about it, and you have been. So we're gonna lay out the groundwork today of social determinants of health. You and your team put together a few key points that will really help us lay the foundation. So would you just walk through those little points for us and set the stage here? Sure. So um, we know that in the employer space that the focus on physical health has been there for a long time, providing information on nutrition, exercise, so forth. But what we're seeing is that people aren't really getting healthier, right? So in some cases, they're able to slow down that curve or that trend of um, health declining or to maintain a little bit. Well, we're not seeing a lot of health improvement in many cases. So employers are taking a step back and are saying, why, you know, why isn't some of this working? And the challenge really is that there's this whole spectrum of well-being that determines how a person is able to navigate their life and have their best health. And physical health is only one component of that. 
then there's mental health, emotional health, financial health, social health, all things that if they're out of balance are barriers to an individual, an individual having their healthiest self. And so employers are saying, what are some of the things that we can do to help impact those areas? Because as a business, not only do we care about our employees, but we're also trying to manage those healthcare costs and those trends that come along with um, the health improvement or decline that we're seeing with our employees. And this actually brings back fresh a conversation that I had with Sean Bell from Adoro, and that's a separate podcast episode that I would encourage folks to listen to. But he and I both worked in wellness together early on. And at that time, you know, we were really segmenting wellness, right? There was the component of we're going to help people stop smoking, we're going to help people move more. And, you know, what we've discovered in all of that is people are just so much more than those individual things. And you can help someone stop smoking, and they maybe still haven't achieved truly an overall wellness because, you know, we weren't focusing on the total human. And much of what we're talking about today here is that total human. Yeah. So in looking at those components of well-being that we were talking about earlier, we're seeing that if we don't address those, that um, the, the health status of the, of the employee just continues to maintain or to decline. So how can an employer look at addressing those things? What kind of resources that can can they bring into the workplace? And so they're being more open to what might that look like, whether that's meditation, whether that's financial planning, whether that's um, more social connectedness with activities or things that, that the employer wants to offer in the workplace. And then stepping back and saying, what else is impacting our employees' health? And really starting to dive into what we call social determinants of health, right? And social determinants of health are all these things, Danielle, that impact our lives that could be um, where you're born, where you're raised, where you're living now, where you work, where you worship, all of those uh, influences that are part of what a person knows to be um, their self. Yeah. One of the things I have found fascinating about social determinants of health are some of the things that I don't think at all about in my neighborhood or my community, you know, driving by grocery stores that I know have great fruit and vegetables, walking my dog in a community with sidewalks, but all of these things and so many more that you're going to talk about as we move along are part of these social determinants of health and these factors and predictions and how long are we going to live and how healthy of a life will we live it? It, it does kind of, uh, it blows my mind a little bit to think yeah. about how all of those pieces come together. So when, when we talk about social determinants of health, what kind of an impact are we talking on an individual's life? Yeah. So you're looking at things like food, housing, transportation, healthcare, financial stability. Uh, we know that um, a person's zip code can determine their health status in some instances more than genetic makeup. So, which is fascinating. I know, right? It is. Yeah. It is. So 
Um, all of those things influence are interconnected in a way that influences an employee's or an individual's ability to be healthy. Okay, so geographic location, give us some examples of where we see challenges and where that's a detriment when we talk about this and what are some of the factors that make for a great location? <laughs> yeah, so geography is a big, I would say one of the, one of the bigger factors in social determinants of health, right? So um, we can use the Seattle metro area as an example of one of the fastest growing areas in the country. Along with that come rising housing prices. We're also seeing that in other uh, areas like Denver, Salt Lake City, things like that. But what happens when a city becomes really um, populated and, and moving quick like that is that housing prices go up, individuals have to begin to look at moving out further, rent goes up, mortgages, uh, cost of housing goes up. And those things impact how much available money, income that somebody has to pay for things. So in some of these cases, we're seeing more than 30% of an individual's income going just towards housing. And a lot of times it's because of the geographic area that they might live in. But as you move out further to get a little relief from the housing part, it sets up other things that become barriers. And that might be a long commute to work. Whether you have the resources to be driving every day, does tra public transportation go out that far for you to be able to, to get that ride to work? Um, childcare, if you have kids, do you want your childcare by your house or by your work? Because now you have an hour commute if something goes wrong and you need to get there quick. It, it sets the stage for a variety of things that people have to navigate. And then when you say, oh, by the way, you need to go get your preventive exam. <laughs> They're thinking, how do I fit that into the day? Because I'm leaving my house early, I'm getting home late, I have to make dinner, I don't even have time to go for a walk, and now I'm trying to figure out how to take care of my health as well. And so we definitely see those types of things um, intertwined. Yeah. And one of the statistics that your team pulled to and just looking at Western Washington, that access to exercise in Pierce County is, I would say, significantly lower, 83% access there versus King County, where 97% of the population has access to exercise. And then that translates to things like obesity, it's correlated to the access to healthy food as well. And so when I hear you talk about this connectedness and the commuting, I think of my own, you know, challenges as a, you know, as a mom raising kids over the last couple of decades, you know, we've had a lot of nights where we didn't eat dinner until 830 or maybe later, because after commuting, if I chose to take in some exercise, man, it made for a really late night and that's just not always possible. Self-care can really go out the window very quickly in, in these yeah. kinds of um, scenarios. You also see things with like what we call food deserts where there's not a, a option that's within maybe a two mile radius of your home to get access to healthy food. Um, when we when food deserts can be pretty common in parts of a city where 
there's um, like apartment housing, but then there's warehouse and stuff's close by. A lot of times there's not like a large supermarket close by or things like that. And, and it's harder for people to make those healthy choices and have um, access to that food if they have to go a distance to get it. They just sometimes are gonna put off doing that extra thing. And food deserts are really something that communities are starting to try to identify and do work around solving for. Yeah. One of the other um, pieces that, you know, you guys have have pulled together in looking at the Seattle data is really connected to, I mean, and this is tied together, that financial and economic stability, um, Mm -hmm. that's directly connected to health outcomes as well, which shouldn't be a surprise to people, but maybe in the ways that it shows up, it can be a surprise. So walk us through some of those ways that um, that financial stability impacts the outcomes. Um, so having, when you, when you are looking at your health care and you may be fully employed and you have um, a health plan that your, your employer is providing for you, uh, a lot of times there's um, an understanding that needs to happen with how to access that insurance, which can sometimes be difficult. I work in insurance, Danielle, so do you. Sometimes I'm trying to figure it out. It's not that easy. It's so, not. Um, but there may be a copay that has to be paid. Most employers now, not all, but a lot of them have a high deductible health plan as one of the options. We know the premium is usually a little bit less with that. If you're somebody who's got tight finances, that premium looks good to you, but um, there's an out-of-pocket expense for that. And when individuals realize how much they need to pay out-of-pocket or they go to one appointment and then they get that bill, they may not go back. So um, delaying care, one thing that we do see sometimes with the high deductible health plan is delayed or avoided care when the individual has to pay their part. Um, And in a case like that, things that could be treated, get left for a while, might end up with an ER visit, um, some things like that. So there are definitely financial implications to um, the financial stability part of, uh, of this conversation. And I think that from an employer perspective, that's going to come back and it's going to hit your health plan, right? And an employee may be off of work longer than they need to be. So there's definitely business implications as well. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the connections that your team has made with the data is that people who are lower wage earners have higher incidence of diabetes, heart disease, stroke, obesity, depression, and premature death. And that's not data that's just specific to Washington, but really nationally. So it does matter. And I might say this a couple times as we go through this, um, you know, as a society and as employers, we pay for these kinds of things one way or another. So let's work together to do it in some ways that bring health outcomes that are really going to make a a great impact in someone's life. What about social connectedness? This one, I think, too, will um, hit home for everyone right now. Why is that a health determinant? Yeah, so we know that social isolation or loneliness 
can lead to poorer health outcomes for an individual. There's been some long-term studies showing that as you age and if you're isolated and alone that you have a 40% increased rate of dementia versus somebody who's not in that type of situation and that the health status of that individual can be um, similar to someone who's smoking 15 cigarettes a day, even though you're a non-smoker. So really what, what you see happen is you're taking on the stress of the world by yourself. You don't have somebody to process decision-making with. You don't have somebody to help support you when you're thinking through things or you're having a hard day. And all of those things become internalized in a way that causes stress in our bodies. And um, we know that isolation is something that also causes um, some behavioral health things around like depression, anxiety, and those things also contribute to a poorer health status. So social connectedness, I think, is something that we really need to be taking a, um, a deeper dive look into, especially right now with COVID, but also just knowing that you can't really replace human contact. And Danielle, you and I were talking about earlier today together that you miss seeing your coworkers in the office. And, and I agree, we can get that work done that we need to do by being on the computer today, but it's not the same as somebody stopping by your office and asking you how you're doing or checking in on how your weekend was or just, um, just showing that little bit of extra caring. So true. In fact, you know, someday, Linda, you and I are going to meet face to face and maybe sit in the same room together. Wait. I can't, I can't wait. Um, you talked a little bit about Western Washington and increases in housing costs, but there are other components here to our changing demographics. And thank you, because you and your team really dug in to look at specific things here in our region. Share with us what you have found about, you know, what else is happening here in our metro area? Um, so, you know, across the country, our, our world's becoming more, our country's becoming more diverse. Um, but in Washington, we've really seen in the past 15 years a, a big increase in diversity. And along with diversity comes language diversity as well. There's a 50%, 54% increase in language diversity in the state of Washington in a 15-year period of time. And um, so along with that, though, come challenges that impact um, healthcare and the health status of individuals. And when you have English as a second language, there are some barriers to healthcare that I think that we can look at and try to help address when we recognize that they're there. So for instance, um, understanding this, an individual may be fully employed, have great insurance, but are trying to understand how to navigate that in a system that might be different to what they were used to. Um, having a regular provider that they're going to, understanding how to follow prescribed medical care that they've received. And, and often we see um, when those things are challenging to navigate that those individuals are gonna end up in the emergency room more often to seek that care that they need. And um, those types of things, those expenses, that stress with that employee, come back to that employer um, through health claims or through lost time for work or some different things like that. 
Yeah. You know, that 54% number blows me away a little bit. I mean, I've, I've been here in Seattle now for a very long time and I've witnessed the change, but you know, when you witness the change, it always, you know, you don't really necessarily look at it and say 54%, but that's huge. And that would be another place for an employer to really consider, you know, your your communication and your open enrollment strategies and all of these things that may have really worked well in the past may need fresh eyes every year with a new approach that's going to help the population that you know that you're serving and employing because that language diversity piece i think it's only going to continue to grow. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And many employers I work with right now do their open enrollment guide in more than one language. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's challenging them to take it to the next step and say, you might want to have a, um, a navigator, right, a healthcare navigator right on site during open enrollment to help answer additional questions and having that person be a culturally um, appropriate person that, that that those individuals feel that they can connect with to help give that message can be really helpful or to even provide training to one of your own employees who has that relationship with those other employees of that um, of that diversity so that there's some connectedness there in working together to resolve that. Yeah. So let's wrap this episode with one final question, which is going to be a bit of a recap of sorts, but tell us why should social determinants of health matter to employers? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I would say, Danielle, that we bring our whole person to work. Right, so we bring the good things, we bring the things we're struggling with. Most people can't separate those things. So whether an employer is looking at social determinants of health directly or not, those things are coming into their workplace because they're just part of who we are. And as an employer, if you can step back and look at how these things might impact an employee's ability to be present at work, so their presenteeism, their productivity, if they're trying and struggling to figure out some of these things and they're doing that during the workday, that's taking away from their ability to contribute in the way that they could best contribute and be their best self at work. So the employer's going to be able to get more of that employee's um, commitment, I think, at work and their focus if they're able to look at what things might be impacting um, those employees outside of the workplace as well. And, and from a business perspective, really looking at how does that also impact your healthcare claims, right? If individuals aren't able to be their healthiest self, they, those things are going to be coming through and the business is going to be paying for them one way or the other, as you had said earlier. Yeah. Well, we are going to conclude part one and part two, Linda is going to give us some really great examples of what employers can do, what she and her team have helped some of our clients do. So I would encourage you to jump into part two and listen to that. You can find this episode and all the others on YouTube and on iTunes. Take good care.